in the story of Joshua, so the Israelites have gone into the promised land. They've um, had a couple of victories and a bit of hassle along the way. Uh, and we now pick up the story in chapter 9. Going to read it through. Do follow it. Now, when all the kings west of the Jordan heard about these things, those in the hill country, in the western foothills, and along the entire coast of the Great Sea as far as Lebanon, the kings of the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, they came together to make war against Joshua and Israel. However, when the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they resorted to a ruse. They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn-out sacks and old wineskins, cracked and mended. The men put worn and patched sandals on their feet and wore old clothes. All the bread of their food supply was dry and mouldy. Then they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and the men of Israel, We've come from a distant country. Make a treaty with us. The men of Israel said to the Hivites, But perhaps you live near us. How then can we make a treaty with you? We're your servants, they said to Joshua. But Joshua asked, who are you and where do you come from? And they answered, your servants have come from a very distant country because of the fame of the Lord your God. For we have heard reports of him, of all that he did in Egypt and of all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, Sion, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth. And our elders and all those living in our country said to us, Take your provisions for your journey. Go and meet them and say to them, We're your servants. Make a treaty with us. This bread of ours was warm when we packed it at home on the day we left to come to you. But now see how dry and mouldy it is. And these wineskins that we filled were new. But see how cracked they are. And our clothes and sandals are worn out by the very long journey. The men of Israel sampled their provisions but didn't inquire of the Lord. Then Joshua made a treaty of peace with them to let them live. And the leaders of the assembly ratified it by an oath. Three days after they made the treaty with the Jebunites, the Gibeonites, the Israelites heard that they were neighbours living near them. So the Israelites set out. And on the third day they came to their cities, Gibeon, Kephirah, Beeroth, and kiriath Jerim. But the Israelites did not attack them, because the leaders of the assembly had sworn an oath to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. The whole assembly grumbled against the leaders, but all the leaders answered, We've given them our oath by the Lord, the God of Israel, and we cannot touch them now. This is what we will do to them. We will let them live so that wrath will not fall on us for breaking the oath we swore to them. They, to, they continued, let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers for the entire community. So the leader's promise to them was kept. Then Joshua summoned the Gibeonites and said, Why did you deceive us by saying, We live a long way from you? Well, actually, you live near us. You're now under a curse. You will never cease to serve as woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, Your servants were clearly told how the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you the whole land 
and to wipe out all its inhabitants from before you. So we feared for our lives because of you, and that is why we did this. We are now in your hands. Do to us whatever seems good and right to you. So Joshua saved them from the Israelites and did not kill them. That day he made the Gibeonites woodcutters and water carriers for the community and for the altar of the Lord at the place the Lord would choose. And that is what they are to this day. What a difference sin makes. Right at the outset of this chapter, we have the kings of the area deciding to gather together to fight Joshua. But if you read back to chapter 5, verse 1, they felt very differently. Now, when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan, all the Canaanite kings along the coast, how the Lord had dried up the Jordan, their hearts sank and they longer had the courage to face the Israelites. So what's changed? I think what's changed is that the Israelites, well, Achan, messed up, sin into the camp of Israel. Israel got defeated at Ai, and that gave these kings fresh hope that they could maybe beat the Israelites after all. What a difference sin makes. It's kind of heavy note to start this morning on, but that's where the chapter starts. Yes, there's always restoration from our sin when we mess up, as God demonstrated in the fact that Ai was then captured by the Israelites. But the consequences of sin rumble on. And I believe was what the Israelites now faced in battles to come. We'll pick up those battles uh, in chapters 10 and 11. Uh, some great stories there, including the sun standing still. Amazing stuff. But they had battles to fight now, which maybe they wouldn't have had to fight if they hadn't messed up in the first place. just kind of struck me. Better to avoid sin as much as we can in the first place. Life's probably a lot more straightforward that way. Anyway, as I say, those battles lay ahead for the Israelites. And while we're on the subject of battles, which I think we'll realise we'll come back to next week, just want to mention at this point something that's happening from the 8th to 15th of November. We've set aside that week for another week of prayer. It's a mention of that in the news sheet this morning. And I, I increasingly, I'm realising myself how much Prayer has got to be the point we're fighting together to see God break through. You're hearing up week by week over the last few weeks, you've heard about, been reminded about what we're doing in the different parts of our community around the city to engage with that community, to bring good news to that community, to do people good. But in all of that, we want the good news of the gospel to break out and change people's lives. And I think, if we're honest, we're not really seeing that fully yet. There are battles to be fought, folks, to see the gospel break through. And I think that biggest battle has got to be fought for us in prayer. I just want to encourage you. We're going to set the week aside. We'll give you some more information next Sunday. But can you be thinking now about how you're going to plan that week? Think about who you might meet up with in the church that you can pray with through that week. Time yourself to do business with God in prayer. Time in small groups. Time together on our Thursday night. We have a church meeting that week to get together. And let's recognise that there's this dynamic that goes on where fasting and prayer go together. Maybe set some time that week aside as well to actually really give over to God in fasting. 
that we can actually start to see all this great stuff that God's opened up for us actually start to really change people's lives as well. Anyway, let's get back to Joshua 9. So we've got these battles to come. That's later in the story. Today, we're faced with the rather interesting story of the Gibeonites. Uh, and verse... There are some pictures somewhere, but the guy... There we are. Scrub on a couple. Keep going. Yep. They were under attack. We've dealt with that. We're now about to be conned. Um, that is indeed... I think a dog lying under a chicken. <laughs> the chicken's been conned. Anyway, um, like the other kings around, the Gibeonites have realised that they faced annihilation from the Israelites. But unlike the other kings around, they come up with a fresh plan. And they decide that a bit of deception is needed. Now, it's interesting just to kind of put in by way of background that it's probable that they'd picked up something of what had gone on in the Israelite story. There's evidence in verse 9 when they refer to uh, the battles that God had won for the Israelites as they come through the wilderness. These kings with great names like Sion and Og, who they defeated. So the, the news had gone before them. They'd taken that in and they kind of used that to good effect. But it's possible... But from the way that they actually make reference to wanting to be the Israelite servants, to, to, to wanting to come uh, and uh, make a treaty with them, that they knew something that they were kind of tapping into the Israelites' memory over. Uh, if you were to turn back to scriptures like Leviticus 19 and verse 33 and Deuteronomy 24 and verse 17 you would discover that the Israelites were to make provision for the alien and the stranger in the land. When you're harvesting your field and you overlook a sheaf, don't go back and leave it there. Leave it for the alien, the fatherless and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you. But also in in Deuteronomy 20, God had allowed the Israelites to make a treaty with those that lived far away. There was something, obviously, about Cain and its depravity, and everything else that God had a real problem with, which is why he gave the Israelites instruction to set it out about this process of sweeping out the land in order that they could take it over. And whilst that raises some interesting challenging questions for us in the world we live in, um, in brackets here, remember December the 5th, Dave Perry tack an evening for us about the whole issue of ethnic cleansing as it kind of seems to be touched on in the book of Joshua, close brackets, um, whilst that kind of remains in our background, nonetheless, God had made provision for people who lived far away to be treated differently. Uh, Joshua, Deuteronomy 20, verse 10, just reading through quickly uh, on that. When you march up to attack a city, make its people an offer of peace. Uh, if they op- accept and open their gates, uh, they can work as forced labor for you. Uh, but if they don't, you have to sort of attack them and do nasty things to them. Um, i paraphrase. This is how you are to treat all the cities that are a distance from you and do not belong to the nations nearby. However, the nations that God has given you as inheritance do not leave anything that breathes. So in the nations that were far away, God was opening up the possibility of treaty. If they came to them 
and said, we'll work for you as forced labour, as your servants. So it's possible that the Gibeonites had tapped into some of that. They heard about that, they knew about that. Certainly that is, from the Israelites' point of view, the button they press. That makes them think, we've got to take this seriously. So the Gibeonites come up with this crafty, deceptive plan. Now, as you read the story through, you might want to shout, hang on guys, wake up, it's a trick. You're being conned, don't do it. But they fall for it because it looks good, because that's what deception does. And there are some interesting warnings just kind of echoed in the passage. Verse 7, the Israelites had their suspicions. Maybe you live near us. But they didn't act on those suspicions. They allowed them to be overridden. Why? Maybe they get taken in by the the flattery of the Gibeonites. Your God's such a great God. Look at these wonderful things he's done. We want to come and be servants for you under your God. Maybe the whole charade of the bread and the clothes takes them in. And what their eyes see becomes persuasive. Doesn't that remind you of something about Genesis 3? It looked good to eat. Something in all this about the Gibeonites' ruse was kind of, it's too good to be true. That's because it was too good to be true. But that's what happens with deception. It takes us in. And I just want to underline to us this morning that we can read this story and think, oh, silly Gibeonites, con, stupid trick. You should have seen it coming. But when we are in a situation like this, how many of us time and time again get tripped up? And I'm particularly obviously making the kind of spiritual parallel into our lives because there is one who wants to trip us up. And we don't talk about him too often because we only give him too much, as it were, press and headline. But Satan is the deceiver. He is the father of all lies. And he is out to trap us. Deception is a trick of the enemy. You've got these there before you. Deception's plausible. If it wasn't, we wouldn't give in to it. These guys looked plausible. They looked kind of like they'd come a long way. It was all kind of believable. There was something about it that in a way was kind of attractive. Whether it was the fact they could suddenly thought, oh, we're going to get some guys working for us. We've got some extra servants around here. Whether it was the kind of attraction appealing to their egos. You've got such a great God. Better than all the other gods around here implied. Whether something of it makes them want to think the best. Well, it looks like, you know, we have got this thing to be kind to people from a distance. Yeah, and we're kind of being bigged up here as Israelites. And something appeals that in us that wants to think the best in a situation because really we want to be nice people. But whatever the combination of those things it powerfully tricks them and it then leaves them trapped. And for me, the most telling thing about deception is that it leaves us trapped. It doesn't just trick us and give us a bad taste in our mouth. So often it tricks us into something in which we then get ensnared and cannot get out of easily. And because I've been around for a few years now, I've sadly watched a number of people over time do that. And I think, how can you do that? 
How, how can you have been this individual and, and now you've put yourself in that situation? Because deception is that crafty. And sin does trap. And I want to sort of, you know, the old Ishmael song comes to mind this morning. Forgive me for reciting Ishmael on Sunday morning. But, you know, if you think you're standing, be careful lest you fall. For all of us this morning, I believe there's a warning that God wants to underline. Of, don't think that somehow we are you know, immune to this deception thing. That's what just trapped a few poor Israelites a long time ago, or some other poor guy, and it won't get you. Deception is a trick of the enemy that we need to be on our guard against. It blinds us to truth, and we need to be crafty in our combating it. So how do we do that? I've got a great piece of advice for you this morning. I want to introduce you to somebody. Or something. I want to introduce you to Alert. (laughs) Alert, as you will read, is a small furry woodland creature whose senses are always very intensely attuned to its surroundings. I want to invite you, ladies and gentlemen, this morning to become like Alerts. (laughs) Or slightly more seriously, to remember what Peter said, be alert. Because the devil's prowling around seeking to get a hold of you. And notice the qualities of the alert with those large ears, big eyes, and kind of tuned antennae. You have the Spirit of God within you, which is kind of like those ears, eyes, and antennae. The Israelites kind of had a button pressed. They were suspicious, but they allowed that suspicion to be overruled. The Spirit of God will nudge you in those situations, but God doesn't want to let you fall. And we need to learn to listen to the nudges. But there's something that I don't know how this works, that God doesn't make us immune from, from these things, because he's looking for us to respond as alert and sensible kids of his. So be alert, be self-controlled, be on your guard. And also do what Joshua forgot to do, which is ask God. Verse 14 kind of sits in the middle of this chapter in a kind of uncomfortable kind of balance of the two halves of the story. The men of Israel sampled their provisions, but they did not inquire of the Lord. Didn't do the... God, what should we do here? Yahweh, what's going on? Are these guys legit? They just charged on their own strengths, thought it all felt very plausible, the bread definitely felt, tasted stale and dreadful, and the wineskins really were cracked, and there wasn't much that clearly had been very fresh about all this. And they said, okay, guys, tell you what, We'll make a treaty with you. We like to have some extra servants around here. We'll make a treaty with you. Just want to pause for a moment and think about their unwillingness to ask God. I say unwillingness, their reluctance to ask God, their failure to ask God. Because I felt as I was going over this this week and sort of rumbling around the story, this was actually something that most of us did most of the time. At least if you're anything like me, you do it. Because I know how often I don't do what I should do in that sense of pressing the pause button and asking God. And 
It strikes me in particular, there are two elements that we need to face up to this morning. I do actually believe in this kind of morning when God's challenging us about rising from the ashes, about bringing change, that this is something that I want to invite all of you this morning to just do a kind of, let me take a kind of rain check for myself on this one. In two areas. One of them I see is that we're reluctant to ask God because we did in the past and he didn't show up and we felt let down, so what was the point? So yeah, I'm going to carry on kind of believing in God because it seems the obvious thing to do, but actually am I going to trust him to ask him what he really thinks? No, I'm not sure that I am. Didn't work last time. Why should it work this time? And whether it's disappointment, hurt, let down, didn't work out the way we wanted, something of past failure, of past disappointment, makes us hang back from really kind of putting our faith on the line, trusting God to ask him in a situation, what we should do now? Trouble is, you're then caught. Because if God is God, and actually he is the one who wants two hours to rise with healing on our wings, who wants to bring transformation into our situation, it probably ain't going to happen unless we ask him. So, Do we allow, for whatever reason, those past hurts were there? I'm not not minimising the past hurts. I've been there, done that, bought the T-shirt. It's a very real struggle at times. But if we just allow that to be the deciding factor, then aren't we stuffed? And aren't we selling ourselves short? There's a fight for faith to be had here that says, even though... There's no grapes on the vine and any food in the storehouse, yet will I trust you. It might look like it didn't work, but yet will I give it another go. And I am going to ask you. I want to encourage, challenge, whatever you need to hear this morning, that if you know that there are areas that you won't go to God about because it didn't work last time, so what's the point? to take the risk of visiting that again, saying, God, I'm sorry, what I don't know what went on, want to leave it behind us, want to give it another go. Can we talk about this situation, please? Because I really do need to know that you're actually the God of grace who can break in for me here. There's a fight for faith to be had here. The other thing I want to challenge us about this morning, the other reason for reluctance that I suspect creeps in, is this, you know, putting the honesty bolt on right now particularly I'm aware of, is the, I'm just a vaguely kind of competent together guy. What do I want to worry about? Charge. And we don't actually think to ask God because we're too independent, we're too proud, we're too busy. Yeah. We're to a whole lot of stuff in that area, kind of self-dependence that stops us actually letting God in. But that also means we're selling ourselves short. Because if God is God, then somehow I'm really not that capable in comparison. And why should I think that I was if there's actually somebody who's got an awful lot more grace and power and energy and wisdom and skill and insight available to me that I'm not bothering to access right now because I'm just charging on doing my own thing. Brain. Duh. 
Okay, I do it a lot. I know I do it a lot. But that doesn't make it right. And I want to say this morning, if you know that that sense of independence, self-reliance, whatever, is stopping you from actually pressing the pause button and saying, God, what about this situation? Is it time to actually just afresh bring it before God and say, come on, Lord, better change, please, here. Help. And remember that whether it's out of past hurt or out of our independence, God never intended that we sort this stuff out on our own anyway. And the other mistake I think we make, because very much the society we live in, the culture as we live in, in, you know, that encouragement to do it all on my own, I did it my way stuff, means that we forget that actually God's place is in community. And he's given us one another to hear God in. He's given us friends to pray with. I don't mean friends who are nice to us. I mean friends we can actually pray with and listen to and hear God together with. He's given us groups of people in the context of church life here to sit down with and share life with and have them pray for you and hear God together for you. He's given us the scope of having personal pastors who will actually take some sense of walking through things with you in a particular committed way. We're not designed to sort these things out on our own either. So let's take advantage of the community God's placed us in and make use of that as well. Okay, we're going to come back to this later, but that's kind of, I'll kind of hold that there. What's God putting his finger on for you this morning? That he'd have you take back to him fresh, with fresh challenge, fighting for fresh faith, whether it's because you're hurt or whether it's because you're independent. In either way, it's a fight for faith to actually trust God. What's God putting his finger on for you this morning? I do feel that for the vast majority of us, that's a question we need to answer this morning in some measure before we walk out the door. Okay. So, the Israelites have done it. They've actually committed themselves. The Milk has been spilt, as it were. Thank you. Can't get it back in the bottle. The commitment's been made. And there was obviously something about this commitment that wasn't just a, yeah, you can be our friends, it's fine. The word for they made peace with the Gibeonites is that word shalom. That kind of all-embracing, deep, enriching sense of peace that we want to enjoy with one another. And they made an oath that went with it, which from the culture from the times almost certainly means that it wasn't just a, yeah, I'll be a good guy, you be a good guy. It had a binding sense of commitment to it. It was probably made with sacrifice. An animal got killed to signify that this covenant was being made and it mattered. And it's clear from what the Israelites go on to say they knew this was serious stuff because of the way in which they talk about, hang on a minute, guys, we can't go back on it, because if we go back on it, God's going to have us for mincemeat, because we've committed ourselves to this thing in the name of the Lord our God. Rash promises have now become binding on them, but they've got to stick with that. Making covenant is a powerful thing. Breaking covenant has serious consequences. We live in an age in which covenant is trivialised. Commitment, I believe, is not necessarily 
valued in the way that it has been. I don't think we have maybe enough of a sense of the, the, the weight of covenant from Scripture that, that understands how binding and strong a thing it is. The Israelites may have rashly entered into it, but they knew now they'd made a very serious commitment to one another. And they knew that in a sense, you know, it was a bit of a life or death thing. But said it's powerful. Let's just look at some of the consequences of that as it affected the Gibeonites. Two Ps. Their lives were preserved and their lives were protected. Covenant brings preservation and protection for us too. Even though the Israelite people grumbled, the leaders said, no guys, we can't go back on it. These guys have got to be allowed to live because we've taken that commitment, that covenant towards them. And you read on to the next chapter, chapter 10, and the kings around who threatened war went to war against Gibeon, first of all, interestingly enough. And the Gibeonites said, Israel, help! And the Israelite army comes riding over the hill and brings protection to the Gibeonites and beats off the marauding kings. They got preservation and protection. That same thing applies to us. I'll come back to that in a moment. The other thing they got, of course, from this covenant, which is part of the way in which they've made it, was they were now locked in servanthood. Now, this is fascinating. If you look at what happens, the Israelites say, okay, guys, We've made an oath with you. You've got to be our servants. Remind yourself back in chapter 20, verse 21. They, the Israelite leaders continued, let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers for the entire community. So the leaders promised to them was kept. Right? So get that in your minds. At that point, they're committed to these people. The provision and protection is there, and they're going to be servants. They're going to serve the community. Then Joshua comes along and says, Ah, sorry guys, you are cursed. You tricked us. This wasn't a legitimate covenant made between two two parties. You tricked us. You are cursed. And because you're cursed, you will never serve, you will never cease to serve, sorry, as woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God as well. So, Joshua upped the ante in this kind of curse he laid on the Gibeonites by making them serve in the house of my God. That meant collecting an awful lot of wood and an awful lot of water for an awful lot of sacrifices. Because there were an awful, if you go back in Leviticus, there were an awful lot of sacrifices that involved an awful lot of wood to burn an awful lot of animals that went on in the tabernacle. And these guys were not going to have to do that forever. In some way, Joshua saw that as a curse. Maybe because he'd increased their workload and he cursed them. But they were now trapped in that. And if the story had ended there, we kind of think, well, I don't know, I'm cursing people terribly much, but that kind of seems fair and legit, really. You guys have tricked us, so we've kind of got our own back a little bit. We're not broken the covenant. We're not killing you because you've tricked us. But we kind of got you trapped in this thing. 
But interesting, if you, you kind of have to go looking for it, but there's a very strong suggestion through Scripture that the grace of God now breaks in to this situation, which I find fascinating. See, the first thing you notice, Joshua's cursed the Gibeonites, but he's cursed them to serve by collecting water and wood for the house of God. That's right, Lulu. These guys who were used to engaging in all sorts of pagan practice, child sacrifice, sexual prostitutes, and and so forth and so on, as part of their whole worship thing to the God that they worshipped, were now going to be intrinsically bound into worshipping worship within the house of God at the tabernacle I think that changed them why do I think it changed them? because you then follow on through and the next point that you kind of evidence you pick up is that this, remember that there's another wonderful phrase that Joshua used verse 27 he made them Gibeonites, woodcutters, and water carriers for the community and for the altar of the Lord at the place the Lord would choose. The tabernacle, remember at this point in Israelite history, is the place of focus of worship. The mobile glorious tent with the Ark of the Covenant right at the centre of it. And that, although they come into the promised land or coming into the promised land, the tabernacle has not yet taken root in one, any one fixed place. And where does the tabernacle end up for a significant period of time? At, back to verse 17, at Kiriath Jarim and the town of Gibeon. God, the place God would choose? The Gibeonite cities. 1 Chronicles 16, it's a very clear reference to that. But if you follow the, the story of the journey of the, the Ark and of the Tabernacle through uh, Samuel, through the book of Samuel and, and David's stories, you'll, you'll find it all there. I find it fascinating that it seems to me the grace of God broke into these people who are one have been placed under a curse to actually bring about their transformation to the point where it could well be that she became assimilated as aliens within the people of Israel. And the Gibeon is listed amongst the people rebuilding the walls in Nehemiah 3 and Nehemiah 7. It's as if people who were cursed, nonetheless God's grace broke into and transformed them. And I think that's where there is huge encouragement and implication for us. I said earlier on that what the Israelites enjoyed by way of covenant applies, sorry, the Gibeonites enjoyed by way of covenant applies to us. Preservation and protection. As children of God, we enjoy a covenant with God that is the new covenant that the New Testament talks about. A covenant that was sealed by Jesus' death, which guarantees us freedom and forgiveness from sin. The preservation, of course, is Romans 6.23, that the wages of sin is death. We were under a sentence of death, ultimately. But that's what 
the new covenant of God guarantees us preservation from. And there's, to me, a sense of protection too, because if God is for us, who can be against us? Romans 8. Paul fairly clearly understood. So, they asked, yes, what the Gibeonites enjoyed is kind of mirrored there for us. There's protection and preservation. What there isn't for us is curse. That's the huge difference. Because if Christ has set us free, then we're free indeed. There's no sense of slavery and of being cursed for us under this new covenant. Because there's just freedom. That's the big difference. But, and this is what I felt as, you know, going over this, this this week, some of us feel in situations where we're kind of committed, which might be like a covenant-like relationship of some sort, where we actually feel like we're cursed. We feel trapped. And, and I really felt God wanted to say this morning, you know what, what you may have got into that for you might feel now like a curse, like you're trapped in, my grace wants to break into to transform it. What the Gibeonites experienced in in experiencing the grace of God in bucket loads is available for you. And so if you're someone here this morning and I I don't know what those situations might be, but if, if you're in a situation where you feel trapped out of a sort of what effectively is a promise you've made, a commitment you've made, even a covenant you've made, that just feels like at the moment, at the point which Joshua cursed the Gibeonites, that's you. I want to say no. God's promised you this morning that he wants to break his grace to break in and transform it. The Gibeon, two things on that. For the Gibeonites, their covenant was not removed. God's grace broke in to transform it, but they remained servants, the Israelites. I'm not saying that the situation you feel in is going to, you know, the, the covenant's going to be swept away, necessarily. I am saying God's grace is there to break in and change it for you and make it feel very different from how it feels right now. But of course, if you've actually made an illegal covenant with somebody in which you are cursed, then there is guaranteed freedom. Because that's what Jesus has come to do on the cross for us. He became cursed that we would know no curse. And if you're feeling this morning that you've made an illegal commitment to somebody as you look back on it, for whatever reason, there is freedom for you this morning because Christ's fantastic victory on the cross. As we draw things together, I just want to make a couple of comments about this whole commitment covenant thing. Um, as I think I implied earlier on, I do believe that in, we live in a society which doesn't take covenant seriously in the way that generations back it used to. I guess I'm thinking particularly here of the covenant of marriage because we recognise on the one hand there's more of a reluctance for people to commit themselves to marriage these days for whatever reason and on the other there's a willingness to break that covenant once made and take divorce as a way out more readily than people used to. I'm unpacking that this morning. I'm aware there's a potential mindful or two in that. I'm not trying to be glib. I'm just trying to make a general observation that I think a society around us now takes covenant less seriously than it used to. And I think the challenge that we have to face is that we are people who live in a society like that 
that is going to have its kind of vibe rub off on us. And I want to, perhaps my second general question of the morning to all of you is, to what degree are you influenced by society around you that you've actually not understood how important it is that you are a people of covenant? And I'm not just talking about marriage, I'm talking about a mindset that you understand that making commitment is important and sticking with commitment is important. Yeah, it seems risky. Yeah, it's a lot that maybe I want to think through here. Fine. Don't rush into anything without asking what God's asking you to do. Don't make this mistake that Joshua and his people made. But God is a covenant-keeping God who has made, taken a huge risk in making a covenant with us. He's entrusted himself to us and promised a whole stack of stuff because he's a covenant-keeping God. And I believe that the very nature of who God is, he wants to see worked out in us. He wants us to be people who know about righteousness, who know about joy, who know about peace. He also wants us to be a people who know about commitment and covenant. And that we can actually model that very thing to a world around us that makes us look radically different. Because the world around us doesn't live this way. So I do kind of want to ask you this morning, what degree are you comfortable with the whole concept of covenant and commitment? Are you holding back from committing yourself to people around you and kind of giving yourself way because it feels risky and they might let you down and they might hurt you and they might talk about you behind your back and you'd rather stay an island because it feels safer on an island, thank you very much. I want to say, I really don't think you can live that way, how much it might feel safe because I don't think that's the way that the nature of God wants to be worked out in you. He wants you to be somebody who can make commitment to people around you as a reflection of the commitment that God is making to you. And wherever God has said, I'm not into sort of some heavy duty thing this morning, I'm just challenging us that there's surely it's got to be something of how we live that's reflected in the way we affect our lives with the people around us, the relationships we build around us, the way we engage in church community that God's made us part of, the way we look at our money. Are we prepared to commit our money to to church leaders and to God to the way we tithe? Or are we going to maintain control? Are we going to commit ourselves to people around us or are we going to hold back and stay in control? Are we going to take risks with how we use our time or are we going to stay in control? Covenant carries blessing, remember? We need to stick with the covenants that we've made we need to be willing to make and embrace fresh covenants. Remembering the lesson that Joshua learnt, that we don't rush into anything without seeking God's help first. If we don't have his perspective, then more for you. So where does that leave us? Well, I think there are three areas this morning that God is wanting to bring release to us in specifically as well as something more general maybe we want to respond to. I think... Can we flick on to it? I think it should be slide. Yeah. I think 
God wants us to be people this morning who know how to defeat deception. And if you recognise there's an area in your life where you've been tricked, and you are in some, you know, I recognise this morning that probably you might not realise that, because that's the nature of deception anyway, but I'll take that risk that actually the Spirit of God has been nudging you this morning, as I've been speaking, and that something is now kind of going off in you, that you're aware there's something uncomfortable, because actually there's an area where you have actually fallen prey to deception. If you've come under that conviction this morning, I want to tell you that God wants to bring liberty to you this morning and break you free from the trap of deception that you're in. If you're reluctant to trust God in any way this morning, I dealt with earlier on, I want to, and you know specifically there's something in which you are actually reluctant to let, ask God. I know this is a general thing for all of us that I'm challenging us all about this morning, but I sense for some people this morning, you know that you have been kind of prodded a bit by God because there's an area where he actually wants to engage in conversation with you and you're just holding back. If you're reluctant this morning, I believe there's some, God wants to remove reluctance from you and meet with you and do something fresh for you this morning. And if you're in a situation of, of covenant whereby it feels like a curse to you, the grace of God wants to break in and change that this morning either to transform the situation so that the covenant remains, but you are a different person in it, and the situation is different, or to remove you completely from an illegal and wrong covenant. And finally, in that covenant area, I did actually feel for many of us this morning that the covenant thing might be good, but there's still a place for recommitting ourselves to covenant. I woke up in the morning with the phrase, simply recommit to covenant, going through my head. I feel God wanting to say, for some of this morning, we just need not to take our covenant situations for granted, but commit ourselves to fresh, to living that way, and living with God in that. Um, if none of that applies to you, fantastic. But I still want to suggest that you think about those three questions. How alert are you to the dangers of deception? How ready are you to ask God for his perspective on things in your life? And how do you feel about committing yourself to other people? I sense the prophetic this morning has given us a good platform to respond to God in those areas. And I'm going to suggest we do that now. Um, it would be great if the band could come up and just play for us. Maybe just set an atmosphere and environment in which we can do a bit of business with God. Um, it's always easier to get them off to come forward if we're all standing. So maybe we could song, we could sing together, which enable people to stand. I'm then going to suggest that if... In any of those three areas, particularly defeating, removing, and committing, that you want particular prayer for this one, you want to do business with God in a particular way, and you'd like to do that with somebody else, you come down the front here. But I think there may be other ways in which we can respond to God too, uh, that we can just be open to as we just worship him for a bit more right now. So it'd be okay to stand together uh, and see where God wants, what more God wants to do as we finish the meeting this morning.